Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are the Lip Slayers, Tony and Clem. Our mission, as always, is to bring global awareness to the general public while exposing the legacy media and its demonic globalist overlords. How are you doing today, Clem? I'm really excited today, Tony. Well, today we're bringing Pat back, our, one of our Lib Slayer historians. Uh, we had an excellent show with him on last time when he was here uh, talking about how the Bill of Rights is the key for standing up against tyranny. We went back into antiquity uh, with the Roman Republic, discussing how uh, that the founding fathers, who had a deep knowledge of antiquity, incorporated a lot of the principles of the fall of the Republic into the Bill of Rights and how, you know, making certain of these amendments to counteract some of what they saw of the tyranny back then. And we ended the show working up to the English Bill of Rights of John Locke. So, uh, Pat, welcome back, and whenever you're ready, take over. All right, thanks again for having me. Yeah, so I uh, just want to separate, I want to just kind of clarify that uh, John Locke did not write the English Bill of Rights, but he did uh, talk about natural rights practically in the same year that the English Bill of Rights were written. The English Bill of Rights were written in 1689. Um, he comes out with the second treatise on government. It's sort of his own writings coming out with this, what's called natural law theory. And it basically sets the, it's the foundation for our Declaration of Independence. So just to kind of go over the English Bill of Rights first, which was an, it's an actual legal document for England. And for them, you know, you can see a lot of the, the parallels here. Like I think I mentioned in the last episode that they actually have, um, they establish in the English Bill of Rights a right to bear arms, although unfortunately only for the Protestant. Um, and then obviously when we create the Second Amendment, you know, it, it's all-encompassing for any citizen, at least. And by the way, on a, on a side note, as it pertained to the Second Amendment, a lot of people think that that it was denied, basically, to uh, women and minorities. I've heard that before. Um, and in fact, it was not. In fact, there was um, a law, I want to say it was right after the founding of the country, I want to say 1792, 1791, it was during Washington's first administration um, or first uh, presidency, where a, a law was passed basically, at least in some of the states, I think it was a state law, to be honest, um, that uh, if, a, if a home had a widow, basically, if there was no head of household that was male, uh, the woman was actually required to have a gun. It, it, the law actually says all head of households were supposed to have a gun. And this was a. Uh, I'd have to check again and, and figure out what state that was in. Uh, but if there was no actual male head of the household, a woman actually would have to have a, a, a gun to protect her house and her family and property. And so that kind of goes to this idea too of the Second Amendment. And there's often a debate about a well-regulated militia and what that means. Does that count down to the individual level? And you know, I, I, Pat, if I may, I would also point out yeah. that. This, this often propagated misconception and fabrication that, quote, African-Americans were not allowed to have firearms at the founding of the country is, is not true also. And, and what oh, yeah, I apologize. I went right over that. But yeah, as long as you were not a slave, as long as you were an actual citizen, then you as well um, were allowed to have a gun and in some cases actually required, uh, which is kind of the point I was getting to is that what we what was called a militia actually uh, it, a lot of times basically encompassed almost all the men of of what we call it majority age and that they would at least in some i believe in some of the states 
and maybe we could have a separate episode getting a little more just on the Second Amendment, but because I'd have to do a little more research on that again. But a lot of the men um, would have to show up for basically a, a training every once in a while. Because the idea was that if you go to Madison's writings, he actually describes, I think in one of the Federalists, but I could be wrong on it, he writes how the real idea of, of the Second Amendment is that the majority can actually protect from a minority taking over, you know, a, a, a sort of an oligarchy of sorts. So the idea was to actually, and even if that oligarchy was local, even if that oligarchy was uh, like a state government or local government, um, the idea was if you arm the majority, they will be able to defend themselves. So it wasn't, so the militia, this idea of a well-regulated militia shouldn't be seen as a small little group of men who get together, but should actually be seen in the spirit of the law, which is that the majority of people, um, of free citizens, should be armed in order to protect the rights of the people, as opposed I mean, to because, an oligarchy rising up. I mean, because what was, you know, what did the founders all rebel against? They were rebelled against, you know, the aristocracy of old, the old nobles. You know, they knew it was better that, the, you know, that was a small minority ruling over a vast majority. You know, and that goes right. back through history. Thankfully, and, you know, here in the, what you might call the new world, um, it, you know, it wasn't as harshly, it wasn't as harsh as it, as it was in Europe. Thankfully, we, need, we didn't need a French Revolution. So, but, the, but the, it still existed, this, uh, a lot of the, the tyranny. England was trying to um, control not just the economics, but the actual civil rights. In fact, at one point, taking away Massachusetts' actual state legislature. So, I mean, they tried to sort of rule as an oligarchy. But generally speaking, the idea I just wanted to make about the Second Amendment is that it's supposed to be a majority of of people. Much anybody that could and should was the belief. Right. If you're majority age, I mean, don't, you know, obviously probably not going to be arming children, but you should teach children how to handle them uh, so they can be well, competent in the I six years old, so I'm, I'm definitely a proponent for arming children. Right. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> and they I'm just saying. how to handle their firearms at six years old, I assure you. Well, that's a good. That's a good thing. Um, good thing, yep. And I think, I think that uh, you know, I hope, my hope anyway, is that it allows kids to understand a little more the gravity of that tool. Of the well, and I can tell you that um, a little, just kind of off the beaten path here for the direction, hopefully uh, that we are going. But right. yeah, I mean, when when I presented both my children with the option of uh, learning how to use firearms we made a choice and the choice was you can either have real guns from here forward and get rid of all of your squirt guns, dark guns, nerf guns, fake guns, or you can just keep the fake guns, but we can't mix both of them. And then we did I like obviously took a very long time to teach them uh, safe operation, how to use them, always supervise, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I go back to my own past and that, that I was uh, taught how to use firearms at a very young age, but real quick too, if I may jump in and just say something and then turn you back loose there, Pat, is if anybody wants to dispute the idea that African African Americans were armed, I would just recommend you go out and research the name Salem Poor, and then understand that he was far from the only African American who was armed. So go ahead. Right. Yeah, and you can even look at um, not just uh, African Americans being armed for the sake of you know discussing the Second Amendment, but you can even see um, that they were uh, at least in terms of free black men were involved in the process of the rebellion itself leading up to the American Revolution. Yeah, they were, they were um, definitely a, a horde of black founders, no question. 
the uh, Boston Massacre in 1770, um, when basically people within Boston were protesting against a harsh rule from the Redcoats, um, and basically that they had a heavy hand. Um, basically, these men were throwing rocks at the red uh, coats, and I don't want to. I don't want to like totally treat that these people were just peacefully protesting, but it, they weren't attacking the red troops outside of. I'm sorry, the red coats outside of. Uh, you know, they were throwing stones and such. But what ends up happening is that the soldiers end up shooting on these men. It becomes called the Boston Massacre. One of those men actually was a free African American. And I actually remember visiting his grave when I took a trip to Boston. Um, Is that as well Chris as, Yep, that's the one. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, for me, I mean, this, I'm sorry, again, on a personal little note, it was just like an honor to actually be able to go to the grave of these men who stood up against uh, the Redcoats without even having a gun in their hands. Yeah, and by <laughs> the way, a lot of these guys were also professors at universities. They were landowners. They participated in the political process as well. Right, right. Well. The Boston Massacre is a little different. Um, John Adams has a quote on that, and he talk, he's talking about the type of people that were at the Boston Massacre. And uh, I hate to say, he's kind of like, I don't want to say he's looking down, but he's basically saying they're a rough sort. And he talks about free black men. He uses a, an old slang for Irish Catholics and other like sailor types. And so, well, but Christmas Addicts was a whaler. That was actually one of his jobs of Christmas Addicts was he was a whaler. So, I mean, the kind of group that he'd be with, sailors, you know, the right. guy that worked the docks, the salt of the earth. Right, right, exactly. Um, blue collar boy. Yeah, that's pretty much, that was the that was the, the fight. And a lot of people, I, I get tired of kind of hearing this, but sometimes I hear, oh, well, the, the American Revolution was just a bunch of, uh, you know, capitalists fighting for their... Slave know, their, owners! Ugh. Right, right. And by the way, the, the few people in Massachusetts uh, would have been slave owners at this time. I'm not saying that they weren't, there weren't, but it's a whole different culture up there. You know, it, it's blue collar people and the merchants aren't other than John Hancock. You know, a lot of these merchants are what you might call uh, middle-class and even John Hancock, I'm unsure of may, may have actually matched the uh, economic well-being of guys like George Washington. Once you get down to Virginia, you're talking about something where a lot of these guys do actually kind of, in terms of economic well-being, kind of match. They're almost an aristocracy in their own right, just without title. But up in New England, it's you know it's that sailor type, it's that salt of the earth type, who are basically just fighting for their right to not have to buy tea from one company. They're fighting against monopolies. The same thing that even much of the left says they're against. So it's it's difficult to say. Well, we're against. We don't want a monopoly. And then we hate the, or you know, the the people who rebelled were just merchants. Well, they're merchants who are trying to fight against monopolies. <laughs> who better to fight against a monopoly than a mer another merchant? Sorry, that's a side note there. But getting back to the Bill of Rights, the English Bill of Rights, you can see a lot of the same um, ideas, like the Second Amendment, uh, you know, right to bear arms, establishing, uh, basically respecting the establishment of religion. You know, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. You see a lot of that, those ideas in the English Bill of Rights as well, because especially because religion was such a, a trigger point for the conflicts that England went through in the 1600s. While England was going through its, its English, um, sorry, English Civil War in the 1640s, 
the Thirty Years' War is actually wrapping up in the 1640s. It would end in 1648. And this is basically the climax of about 100 years of religious war in Europe, having to do with Protestants versus Catholics and then other Protestants versus other types of Protestants. And it was basically the equivalent of a world war, or like basically a, a war across the, the continent of Europe that also, um, I believe to some degree, may have played itself out a bit in the colonies as well across the New World. So you have this religious aspect that comes into play where different religions are uh, persecuted to the point, like I said, you know, the, the English Bill, even the English Bill of Rights were at the end of the 1600s, and they still are not given that same right to bear arms to Catholics in England. Well, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, but isn't it uh, the case that even after the adoption of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that even some states still declared state religions? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, that's because uh, there was an aspect of the Bill of Rights that didn't make it. I think you mentioned when you guys had your, your episode on the Bill of Rights, you mentioned that there were, uh, it started off as 17 um, articles and got reduced down to, tw- uh, it got reduced down to 12. And one of those articles, if I remember correctly, uh, was, oh, geez, I'm trying to remember. Um, oh, it was about whether the um, Bill of Rights would actually pertain to states. And in the beginning of our country, it did not. So meaning that if a state wanted to actually limit uh, the Second Amendment, they could. If they wanted to limit, you know, if they wanted to establish religion or a specific religion, they could. Um, it was because that provision was not put into the Bill of Rights. It didn't apply to the states until the Civil War or after the Civil War when the uh, 14th Amendment is actually established. And then this starts a process called incorporation in which the Constitution actually starts being applied to states. And obviously, with the intent of applying the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments to the states themselves as well, so they could actually end slavery and um, provide uh, these newly freed ex-slaves with the same voting rights and the same, the same other rights as well. Um, something, you know, obviously the South was putting up a big fight against. So it starts this process of incorporation, which originally was proposed to be in the Bill of Rights. I find it kind of funny because I have a friend who recently had been discussing the idea of um, limiting, he basically was saying overturn the Second Amendment, or um, he was saying he didn't care about the Second Amendment. He wants to ban guns. He's just been very adamant about that. And, And I said, well, the funny thing is, is if... You're talking about, uh, oh, he was basically saying that, you know, he was saying that he was kind of annoyed at the same time that when uh, the Black Panthers had started to arm themselves, that they, uh, that's when you started to see more restrictions on gun rights. Um, and I understand that that's actually, you get a law right around the early 1980s, I believe. It was the Mulford Act, and it was championed by Ronald Reagan in California. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that came about from, uh, I guess, the fear of the Black Panthers being armed. And so he was saying, oh, of gun rights when when uh, African Americans start doing it. And I'm like, okay, that's, a, that's actually a pretty good point. But ironically, if, if it wasn't for the 14th Amendment in terms of giving African Americans rights, you would actually um, – the states would actually be able to limit people's right to bear arms 
But because of incorporation, now the Second Amendment applies to all the states. So you can actually make uh, a legal argument in terms of uh, states like New Jersey, which are really high, and they're you know, very limited in terms of gun rights, that they may be violating the Second Amendment and probably are. I mean, right down to the point where there's a case where uh, a history professor actually had a, a musket from the 1700s he was bringing to a, a historical convention. I think this might have been like five, six, seven years ago, maybe longer. And he was pulled over and arrested for having uh, for having this gun unregistered. He, the professor didn't even think he had to have it registered because... Well, well, under a, the National a, Firearms Act, that musket is an is a antique, and it doesn't actually qualify as a legal firearm under federal law. But get this. New Jersey had actually made a state law in which they said that they even made a point in the law to actually point out that um, it, the law applied to antique guns as well, which is a really – I mean, that's you don't see that in other states for the most part. But that's what they were uh, – these police were trying to get this, this history professor on. Oh, yeah, and Thankfully. it is it is it is diametrically opposed to the federal law. Right. So there's a real opposition here. I mean, regardless of what you think about gun rights, there's a real state versus federal issue here. There's actually a Tenth Amendment issue at play here, as opposed to a second one alone. And so that has to actually be figured out because if we have incorporation, where the the Bill of Rights applies to the states themselves then New Jersey can't regulate um, guns on the level that it does compared to other states. So it's, it's tricky because we use precedent a lot in, in terms of court cases uh, to determine you know, you know, the, the, the outcome of our laws as opposed to looking at the original source. And I'm not going to get that has to do with uh, common law and everything. I'm not going to get into that. But by the way, the only reason I even know about this is because I had a history professor who was an ex-lawyer um, and then decided to get out of being a lawyer because he hated it and then decided to get into early American history. So he applied a lot of his law knowledge to um, the founded documents. So I was very lucky to have him as yeah, a good history for him. professor. Good for him. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I, one thing I wanted to get to is besides the English Bill of Rights is discuss something you guys talked about with the Declaration of Independence, and that's natural rights. And that was something that John Locke wrote about the same year as the English Bill of Rights came out. He wrote it in the Second Treatise of Government. I think it was published in um, 1689. And it's, this whole theory is what our country is based on. Um, and it's, that, I think, is ultimately, you know, when people talk about American exceptionalism, there's a lot of aspects to that. But I, I personally think this is the, the whole thing that makes America its exceptional it puts on an exceptional basis here. And it's this idea that we were a country founded during the time of the Age of Enlightenment and that our, our actual, uh, we're, we're set on a basis of beliefs, not on an ethnic nationality, you know, like, uh, like the French, you know, you're always going to be France or you're always going to be France because you're, it's full of French people, or at least in theory. So, but we're not like that. You can be of any, any religion, any creed, but the thing that makes America American is that it's based on these ideas of natural rights. And so this goes back 100 years before the founding of our country. And John Locke writes uh, as a philosopher trying to figure out, you know, how do we, where do rights come from? And, you know, what are the nature of our rights? And he talks about something called uh, natural rights. And the three natural rights are life, 
liberty, and property. That probably sounds pretty familiar to you know, the Declaration of Independence saying life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Um, and I can get to why it was pursuit of happiness instead of property a little bit later. But what John Locke basically says is that we have a right to life. So no one can physically harm you. No one can kill you. You know, cause it, and the reason it's called natural law theories because it's based off of um, natural, or I'm sorry, natural rights theories. It's based off of natural law theory from the, I believe, 13th century priest Thomas Aquinas. Or Aqu- I always get the name wrong. Aquinas. Aquinas, um, yeah. Aquinas, thank you. Uh, it's based off of natural law, and I won't get too deep into natural law. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, not natural law theory, but get into natural rights. So John Locke builds this idea of natural rights in that it's pretty evident. It's self-evident that humans want to live for the most part. It's their desire to want to live, and we basically decide life is a good thing. So we don't want to harm life. We don't want to kill it. This seems pretty basic, right? But then we get into liberty, and liberty is um, is everything from your right to movement, you know, not to be, let's say, caged like an animal. <laughs> it's your right to, to expression, right? And then lastly is property. And this, in some ways, is kind of the basis of, of a lot of this, is you have a right to try to obtain property and to, once you have it, to do what you will with it. And this is, of course, unless you are violating someone else's right to life, liberty, or property. And there's a central point here that should be made is that we are talking about something that is now called negative rights, meaning that you have a right to something, uh, you have a right to not be interfered with. doesn't mean you have the right to, to receive something, but you have the right to pursue it. So, for example, the right to property in the negative rights sense means that you have the right to try to pursue it through, um, through means that are consensual with someone else. Right, I'll buy land from you or I'll buy this item from you as long as you consent to it. And that's pretty much the name of the game here. It's about consent. That's so updated, I think, today. You could fairly call that uh, contract law or the, the right to contract. Right. That's a pretty good way of putting it. Is Because if you thought, talk about property rights in terms of positive rights, all of a sudden that means I should receive this property no matter what the costs are, no matter who else's rights uh, – are violated, right? Because if if you Clem say, well, uh, I have a right to a piece of land, and I have a lot of land, you know, if you're talking about a negative rights sense, you can pursue that land, you can offer me something for it, uh, but you don't have a right to automatically get it. But if you say a positive right, I have a positive right to land, that needs to come from somewhere. And you know, let's say I have what's considered an excessive amount, maybe by other people. Although who's to say you know, how much is excessive? You have to take from other people in order to receive it, and that's part of property. The negative property rights is once you have property, you can do what you want with it as long as you're not violating anyone else's right to life, liberty, or property. And so you can think of negative rights and positive rights the same way you think of negative and positive on a magnet is that they are opposites. And as soon as you start to indulge in the positive rights, chances are you're going to be infecting someone else's negative rights, sort of conversely. So these rights that John Locke talks about are basically in the form of negative rights. They're all, the idea of positive rights is an extremely new idea, um, and one which I actually I see as kind of riddled with contradictions. It's well, I, difficult I, it, to... Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Bill of Rights is actually a mix of those, and one of them, a positive right, would be the right to keep and bear arms. Is that not a positive uh, right? 
No, no, actually. I would say the Second Amendment is a negative right um, because unless the state is requiring you to keep and bear arms and unless you automatically are to be given uh, some sort of means to defend yourself, but you have the right to pursue a means to defend yourself. So until, until I have to start you know, paying taxes for you to own a, you know, to pay for a sort of what you want to call a welfare gun, <laughs> um, then it's not a positive right. It's not saying you have the right to a gun no matter what. It's saying you have the right to pursue a gun no matter what, or a means of defense, whatever that is. We might have actually hit like the pinnacle of U.S. Society, you know, culture if we actually come to a point where we do have welfare guns. I mean, that's when sovereignty, that's when sovereignties really came back to this country. The government is now providing you with firearms. Well, we can only hope. Well, I know there's a challenge. Very good, very good. We got good points going here. Yeah. We got good points going here, gentlemen. We're about halfway through the show, so just giving that little reminder and uh, keep okay. it going, boys. All right. Um, so uh, there, you are right, though, Clint, that there are positive rights within the Bill of Rights, and one of them would actually be the right to a speedy and public trial. And also, by the way, one of the ways you can kind of figure out if something's a negative or positive right is that in uh, John Locke talking about natural rights, he talks about a state of nature, basically before you have something you might call government. And so in a state of nature, you know, let's say you have, you have the right to hunt. Well, that doesn't, or I should say, you have the right to eat, right? That doesn't mean that you have the right to have someone give you food in a state of nature. Imagine yourself as like a caveman, right? Excuse me. You, it means you have the right to pursue Eden. Now, you can say all you want about being able to, like I'm not saying I'm against welfare, you know, as a, as a whole, but to call it a right is actually confusing the conversation. Um, and so to kind of get on this idea of, of where we start to actually take away from rights is that John Locke basically says, so in a state of nature, you have these rights of life, liberty, and property. But in the, in the state of nature, there are bad actors, right? There's going to be someone who comes along and steals your stuff or maybe kills you and steals your stuff. You know, in the latter case, they're violating both life and property. So in order to defend those rights to life, liberty, and property, we as human beings set up governments. And the government's uh, whole reason for being is to defend life, liberty, and property. Um, and so that's, for example, one of the most fundamental things about a government is the right to a trial. Um, because if someone, let's say, steals your stuff, you have a right to, to, to get, I don't want to say, you have a right to have those rights protected, basically. Um, well, I, would, I would add the caveat then that the, that the purpose of any just government, because there's lots of unjust governments that have no interest in preserving or protecting rights. Right. And by the way, this is, this is probably a good point to bring up. John Locke ha has one other right that's mentioned besides life, liberty, and property, and that is the right to rebellion. And so you see it actually uh, in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, let me see if I can actually bring it up here. Let me see. Okay, so after he's in the Declaration of Independence, remember this is now Thomas Jefferson 100 years, well, about 80 years later, writing that – you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal, and that they're endowed by the creator, uh, usually meaning something like God, with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that pursuit, again, is sort of referring to sort of a negative rights sense. And he says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Same thing Locke is saying, right? This is why we create governments. 
And he's saying, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So it's saying it's, the government is for the people. It's not that the people exist for the government. The government is only a means and an end of, you know, it's an ends to protect those rights. And so it says that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, meaning that they no longer protect these rights, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles. You know, basically that the government can protect, its job is to protect those rights. And sometimes a government ignores that and they don't protect those rights. And in other times they actually actively work to violate those rights. So you know, I think the second case is actually the worst one. The first being, you know, imagine a government like, you know, what I hear of Afghanistan, a government that's almost in some cases non-existent. That government is not, if a government's non-existent, they're failing to actually protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or property. Now, on the other hand, if a government gets too big, it oftentimes now actively works to violate those rights. Especially and so the people if it have becomes a, the tool of the donor class. Right. And uh, kind of gets to a... Um, uh, kind of gets that oligarchy thing we talked about, I think, in the previous uh, talk. Uh, but basically, the fourth right is that right to rebellion. And it's laid out in the Declaration of Independence. Even though it's not officially said in the Constitution, you can actually look at the Bill of Rights. And the Second Amendment, basically, is backing up that fourth right. It's backing up the right to rebellion. Well, I would personally um, contend that the entirety of the Bill of Rights actually sets the stage for legal and lawful rebellion, in that each of the activities that are protected in it lend themselves in one way or, to, or another to rebellion. Uh, right, because you don't know what to rebel against if, if you don't have, uh, you know, people can't speak about these things. So sure. you have like, freedom How do you speech, organize a rebellion if you're locked up without a trial or locked up without a charge? How do you right. how can anyone how can anybody you know tell you what the tyranny or you know the kind of tyranny they're under if you don't have the right to say it? Right. So yeah, you are very right, uh, Clem, that um, that the Bill of Rights are basically they're all of them are there practically. Um, maybe I could find an exception, perhaps, but um, almost all of them are there to basically back up the rights that John Locke talked about a hundred years earlier. Uh, and by the way. That actually continues on into some other cultures as well. So uh, the French Revolution, for example, starts uh, about two and a half months after George Washington's first inaugurated. And uh, Thomas Jefferson's in France at the time when the French Revolution actually starts. And he helps um, uh, the Marquis de Lafayette to actually write what's called the Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Citizen. And in it, the French are actually much more explicit about that fourth right from John Locke. They actually say that you have a right to uh, life, liberty, um, I don't know if they use property, but they do say, the, and basically a right to rebellion. They just flat out say it. They kind of went a little Where, overboard, though, didn't they? Yeah, right well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you look at the French Revolution, I mean, the people that basically instigated the French Revolution would end up being swept up by it. Robespierre, you know, namely, I mean, all these people that were the ones chopping heads off all end up having their heads chopped off at the end of it. Well, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, and Thomas Jefferson was pushing hard for us to get involved. I mean, he felt that we owed France, you know, well, we did. this, you know, well, we, you know, and it's how, you know, John Adams would put it. Well, we had to deal with the French king, not you. True. You guys yeah, cut yeah. off, <laughs> and also 
your whole murderous thing you're doing, but we don't want anything of all. I mean, our, 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 you know, our liberty was so tenuous at the time. The last thing we wanted, you know, I mean, John Adams' entire presidency, you know, his entire term, his one term in office was dedicated, I mean, dedicated to staying out of a European conflict. And there was a, you know, a huge portion of the population that was for getting involved. I mean, they remember the French, you know, involvement. I mean, the French were actively trying to recruit uh, U.S., you know, American citizens to go fight. I mean, George Washington had to tell the French delegation that, you know, you cannot do this. You will be met with force if you try to take our citizens. You know, it was crazy times back then. Yeah, and I kind of think, you know, I, I remember reading about that and how, um, you get a portion of the population who wanted to be involved, right? Like uh, mostly they were Jeffersonians. They were people um, backing up Thomas Jefferson who really wanted to back up France. Uh, and it was mostly the Federalist types who wanted to stay out of it and who kind of saw maybe the uh, French Revolution as – that were definitely saw the French Revolution as going too far. And in fact, it went so far in terms of this this tension between the Federalists and the Jeffersonians – that uh, I remember reading that like Jeff, uh, Federalists would call the Jeffersonians who wanted to back up France things like um, Jacobin and anarchist. Uh, Jacobin being you know the the most radical group within the French legislature during the the Revolution, and and calling them anarchist full out like and and I kind of look you know to our own time in terms of being involved in wars. And I'm kind of glad we we attack people verbally sometimes, but I'm so glad that, you know, not wanting to uh, be involved in the Middle East, let's say, is, you know, people don't yell, anarchist. <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't imagine, you know, whether to be involved in another war would be so divisive in our time that, you know, we're, we're calling each other all sorts of things like anarchist. And, you know, I, I think during the 1800 election, John Adams had a, had some journalist call Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he said, if Thomas Jefferson wins the presidency in the 1800 election, something like your children will be involved in like devil worship and stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that the term, you know, neocon warmonger is probably pretty fitting. When you take a look yeah. at, especially in the last 25 years, you know, some of the things that we've done uh, as a country invading and destroying Libya, et cetera. I mean, it's just ridiculous stuff. We had no business yeah. doing so. I think we do have those among us who have power uh, in these. Yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm glad that like we use a term like that as opposed to saying like I don't know calling them literally Hitler. <laughs> right. You know, well, that, yeah, and we've seen a lot of those comparisons slinging across the aisle as well. Right. But I, think I just I, I and with you, I you know I do I I agree that I think for the most part our our civil conversation is fairly peaceful still. But I mean, let's. I mean, in all reality, we've got people celebrating the shooting of uh, that congressman Scalise. You know, people cheered that. You know, you yeah, that, yeah, that, that that comedian holding up a severed head of the president. I mean, it's like really. Not to jump back into Rome, because I know we talked a lot, quite a bit about it, but kind of referencing uh, what Tony was talking about. I see stuff like that, and I think we're almost up to Tiberius Gracchus. I think Absolutely. we're almost up. We're getting to that point where violence is starting to become more and more acceptable as a means for you know getting your sort of political ideals uh, passed into law. Um, but anyway, you know, going back a little bit to these natural rights, yeah. As the as far as the French Revolution goes, 
Yeah, it, it did get out of control. Um, and there's something, by the way, really important part, really important part within the Declaration of Independence is after it's said in the Declaration of Independence that the people can alter or abolish it if the government is no longer protecting these natural rights. Um, he does say, you know, the prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be tra- should not be changed for light and transient causes. And uh, accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer uh, while, e- while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed, meaning that most of the time people put up with the tyranny in their society. And to some extent, that actually could be considered a good thing um, because we're not switching our government every 10 years. But yeah, and I, think um, we, I think we're lucky we haven't had a 1787 in the U.S., yeah, yeah, it's you know I still am saying we should try to solve this peacefully because yep. once you go down that path, you don't know if it's going to be you know American Revolution or French Revolution or you know Roman Civil Wars. You don't get to like once you open that floodgate, you don't get to decide where the path of the revolution goes. You really, uh, I say we got about five minutes left. Let's uh, okay. finish up our points. All right. Well, I'm just talking. I think that the idea of, of of natural rights is really important to discuss and the idea specifically of negative versus positive rights um, because people say I have a right to this I have a right to that and and they often are confusing the two and in fact when I when I was uh, teaching for a short period of time I actually made sure to have a little lesson for my uh, high school freshman on negative versus positive rights of course, you know, I'm not telling them which ones to believe, but I wanted them to know the difference. So when someone says, I have a right to this, it means what do you mean? Do you mean that you, no matter what happens in life, you should automatically receive it? Or does it mean that no one's going to stop you if you pursue that? Well, let me, you know, let me it, ask you this or, or bounce this off you. What about the relativism or the, or the relative context of, say, for instance, this, um, <clears throat> the right to health care and the the argument is is that when you have a country as wealthy and as prosperous and rich as the United States, then it's almost an abomination that you have people going without health care because they simply can't afford it. So, so there will be people out there that will say, well, everybody in this society has a right to health care because we can afford it. I would I would basically say that. What we owe to our fellow citizens is not a matter of rights. It's, it's a matter of whether we want a stable society. It's a matter of um, what do we want for our fellow citizens. But to call it a right, at least in terms of um, – it's definitely not a negative right. It's not you – know, a, a negative right to health care would be I don't get in the way between you buying – you know, you go into a doctor. I'm not going to stop you from going to a doctor or buying health insurance. Clearly, patients. actually, the government is getting in the way right now with the way that the health care bill, the last one that was written by essentially insurance companies, um, and they're saying you can't buy it across state lines. So there are impediments, uh, and you don't even so you don't even have the negative right of the right of pursuit of a reasonable health care plan. Right, and I think that that is a problem when you see even the negative right to health care being violated. Um, and I tend to, and this is by the way is generally how uh, at least more philosophical libertarians see it is that the only rights are negative rights, and I'm in that category as well, that um, we can talk about stuff like welfare, but it's not a right. 
and I don't mind providing it. It's more something that society perhaps should do. And, you know, it, violating rights, it's not like we haven't done it before. And it's not like, you know, every time we violate, violate a right, it's absolutely uh, a bad thing. You know, for example, and I wanted to get back to this point right before we close. Basically, Locke says, we, right, we establish governments to protect these rights. But the moment we do, we are actually violating a small number of those rights immediately. Because if we, let's say we set up a, a court, right, a court system is um, there to actually help protect your right to life, liberty, and property. But in, who's going to pay for that? Right? You're going to have to actually start taxing people. And as soon as you do that, now you're taking a form of their property away. But you violate a small amount of their property rights in order to protect the larger amount of the natural rights. Well, I mean, my question is, how did they do it in the beginning? You know, what of the of the public works type projects, a lot of that was, if you're a corporation or you're a merchant and you're doing business abroad and you're enjoying the protections and enjoying the prosperity and the roads and the bridges and the ports, et cetera, then we're going to tax some of your commerce uh, and use that money to fund uh, these things that we need, including the military to protect. So I think there's a justification there more than just a straight confiscation and then an allocation to a bunch of people that are ran by special interest groups who then keep the donors happy uh, and then justify it one way or another. But there was more of a connection between those that were directly benefiting from the culture, the society, all the protections and the freedoms and the liberty, and then, you know, hey, you're benefiting off of this directly, and so you're going to have to chip in uh, a fair share. And, and right. I, you know, and I'm pretty libertarian myself, and I don't really have much of a problem with that approach. Also, there's something I wanted to bring up. Uh, I forgot to last time we were speaking. We went to the Roman Republic, or it might have been actually the conversation we had even, you know, privately even before that uh, before that episode. Um, is yeah, I think it was uh, Tony talking about how you know, rich men within Rome would actually pay for things like gladiatorial fights. They'd pay for things like bathhouses and plumbing uh, because that would win over the people and allow them to get higher up in office. And I kept thinking, perhaps there is a way that we could bring a system back like that, which incentivized the rich to actually be able to, to give back to the poor with their own interest in mind without, without a full use of force, per se. Yeah, without, I mean, without, they, the, without the use of violence. Right, which is ultimately what uh, libertarians are trying to avoid as, as much as possible. <laughs> it's the yeah, minimal use said, of violence. You know, once the violence starts, and to a certain extent it's already started, but once it begins to spiral, it's really difficult to bring that, to rein that in, which is why it's prudent to not go down the path of violence to begin with. Right, you try everything absolutely possible because and, and you know when it, going back to rome real quick i know we have to kind of wrap it up when both the gracchi brothers were killed each about 10 years apart from each other especially when the first one was was killed uh, i believe out in the streets if i'm not mistaken no um, they just beat by, him to death right was it right out in the streets of rome if I remember? yeah yeah um a lot of people saw that it seems to be anyway that a lot of people saw that as a fluke like, wow, that, that was weird, right? You know, why did a mob, you know, that'll never happen again. And then his younger brother, it happens too. And then you don't really see anything too bad like that for maybe 20 years. And then from there, you see another more precedent, another precedent, and they start happening more often and more often. And it almost starts to happen exponentially, like a, 
like a ball rolling down the hill that takes time to get the momentum going, but once it gets going, you just can't turn it around. And the bloodshed got bigger and bigger and bigger with each of these precedents until the, until the end in the fall of the Republic. I actually think that's a great place to stop. Pat, thank you very much for coming on. Again, uh, very enlightening. Thank you. Many, many aspects that we have never heard of, and I'm sure many of our, our listeners haven't heard of. Clem, as always, thank you, sir. Uh, and I'm going to end this uh, with a quote from Thomas Paine, which I think is so fitting with the polarized society we're living in today with left versus right and uh, with the, the growing and growing uh, violence that's being pushed, especially by the left with Antifa and Black Lives Matter and all these kind of things, that we need to keep something in perspective about uh, the civil discourse that we're trying to maintain in this country. And Thomas Paine, like I said, has a great quote. He that would make his own liberty secure must guard even his enemy from oppression. For if he violates this duty, he establishes a precedent that will reach to himself. So I think that is about as fitting as it gets. Like us on Facebook, uh, Blog Talk Radio, fast, uh, forward slash Libslayers. Uh, like I said, Clem and Pat, thanks again. And everyone out there for listening, God bless you and God bless America.